Hello and welcome to Public Procurement Podcast with me, Albert Sanchez Graeds. The tables are turned for today's interview, and so it's Pedro Teles who is the interviewee. Pedro is a senior lecturer in law at Swansea University and adjunct at the Law Future Center of Griffith University. He was awarded the British Academy Rising Star Engagement Award in 2015, who are the sponsors of this podcast, and he has done extensive research into both very large and very small public contracts. This will be a longer than usual interview with three topics. Pedro will be talking to us about his views on low value contracts, on how they should be integrated with the internal market and how different aspects of thresholds and valuations can be changed in the future. He will also be talking to us about framework agreements and other sorts of dynamic purchasing options for the future and trying to really modernize and take advantage of technological advantages in this area. And finally, probably on Brexit, legal methodology or any other things that are probably rumbling in his head. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Pedro and to welcome you to your podcast series. So <laughs> welcome this afternoon. Thank you very much, Albert, for accepting the request to be the, the host for this for the podcast because it's it's the last one and I wanted to finish in a slightly different note than usual. So I thought it would be interesting to actually put myself on the other at the end of the microphone and, and be on the odd seat talking about recruitment instead of making the questions and, and and putting the heat on the other people. Yes, I'm sure that you feel very uncomfortably now in that chair. <laughs> Actually, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pedro, I think you have lots of things about low-value contracts. This is something you've been writing about for the last, what, four or five years. So what are your thoughts on that now? How do you see it coming in the future? Yeah, that's true. I've been thinking about low-value contracts, i.e. contracts which are valued below the EU financial thresholds for the last five years, I think. And over the years, I became very surprised with the way they were treated and actual their importance in the overall picture of public procurement regulation. I would say that firstly, it's important to talk about them today in 2017, because the thresholds that now determine the size of the internal market for purposes of public procurement are going to be revised by 2019, or at least it's expected that the Commission will look into them in 2019. And they can go either way, they can go up or they can come down. They have been very stable for the last 20 years, mostly changing just because of um, exchange rate fluctuations between the euro and the um, special drawing rights of the IMF. But come 2019, we may have a more significant change in terms of what are the contracts that are covered by EU rules via the thresholds. Now, the current system is perfectly arbitrary. It's set without any specific reason. So the, the, the threshold values that we know and have been using for the last 20 years or so, there's no actual substantive reason for them to have the value that they have. And in consequence is that above the thresholds, you apply the full might of EU rules and below the thresholds, you apply essentially national rules with the exception of the contracts which are considered to have a certain cross-border interest, which I'll mention in, in a second. Now, one of the interesting consequences of this arbitrary distinction is that in reality, only around 17 or 18% of public procurement expenditure is actually covered by EU rules. So only the tip of the iceberg is actually subject to Directive 2014, 24, and, uh, and the other directives as well. Which has led me to question a little bit the logic of the system, which is why would we focus the most important rules in just a small subset of contracts? Now, as time has went on and I have looked into a little bit more detail with what's happening with the contracts below the thresholds, I was even more surprised with the way that it's treated. And going back to the topic about the certain cross-border interest test that was created by the Court of Justice first with the Telostro case, uh, maybe 15 or 16 years ago, and has been upheld with variations ever since, 
Effectively, this means that for the contracts below the thresholds, they will only be subject to the EU principles if the contract itself has or is able to attract an interest from uh, an economic operator based in another member state. Now, over the years, the court has been fluctuating a lot between what is certain cross-border interest, what is not certain cross-border interest, and effectively this means to me that the court has probably painted itself into a corner, in the sense that they are unable to clearly provide a set of rules or guiding principles that can be consistently applicable to any given situation. And the reason for that being that by subjecting the application of the rules to whomever comes to the contract or is actually interested in a contract, we are subjecting the rules of the contract or the procedure to a condition that is uncertain at the beginning. And that for me, it's, it, it's a critical mistake and it's a critical error from the legal system because you're not providing any sort of legal certainty. For the public procurer, they start the procedure, they don't know at that moment in time if they're going to be covered or subject to your rules, in this case, just the, the principles from the treaty, so equal treatment, non-discrimination, transparency, or, if, depending on who actually comes up to the contract, if they're going to be subject only to the national rules, whatever they may be. But, Pedro, if I can push you on that, because it, it's very clear conceptually, but then, at the same time, every system it has some sort of requirement for transparency and competition and proportionality. So w what is in the principles that makes people so unhappy about them? I suspect that it's probably the fact that it means that in one way or another they'll be subject to EU law. And they would prefer to be subject only to the national law, whatever that may be. I know that in many member states there is a, a fully-fledged legal regulation for those contracts, whereas, for example, here in the UK, there isn't. I mean, if you look at the public contracts regulations, as we did with our commentary, mm -hmm. there is some regulation, but it's very light touch, and it's very, very modest in a sense. So I suspect that the problem people have is exactly being subject to those principles that are coming from EU law and not from national law. And obviously, applying principles, it's always prone to a significant degree of uncertainty in terms of what actually is included and contained within that principle. Whereas if you have national rules which may contain the same or similar principles, the national rules would be, one would hope, a little bit more detailed and prescriptive. So I think there's a degree of legal uncertainty. But the biggest criticism that I have for the, the role of the Court of Justice in all this process is that it has effectively created the perfect Schrodinger's cat Hmm. of public procurement in a sense that any given contract below thresholds may or may not at any given moment and time be subject to EU rules i.e. the principles or subject only to national rules depending on the actual economic operators that turn up to the contract or to the procedure. Yeah, Or even that could have turned up. Or yeah. even that could, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's even more complex than that. So I'm really not happy with the solution that the Court of Justice has reached. And I think that it is time that the court actually looked at it with a fresh pair of eyes and reconsidered its approach. Now, looking also at where the thresholds came from originally, I, I wrote a paper about that a couple of years ago, and I was very surprised by, again, not finding any particular justification for the thresholds. And if I may use an analogy on this, let's imagine that what we take now for granted, at least for now, free movement of people or free movement of goods mm. or services, they apply to all situations without any question, without any reservation. And they've been in the treaty since 1957. 
What I think is the original sin in procurement is that we don't have a similar approach or the treaties did not take a similar approach in the 1950s, and it was only in the 60s, via the, in the 70s, via the, 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 the original directives that procurement was subject to, to positive rules and not only negative rules. Now, when those positive rules came in, they came in and allowed the member states to try and negotiate a degree of protectionism for the national markets. And we can see that in the 70s in the way that the original thresholds were introduced. And you can clearly see that in the 80s when the threshold for works, which was 1 million at the time AQs, I think, was increased to 5 million on the run-up to the negotiations for the Tokyo, I think it was the Tokyo Round or the Tokyo Agreement of the GPA, Hmm. where works were then included as part of the GPA and were included precisely at that level. So, had we accepted from the beginning that all poly contracts would be subject to free movement and subject to this possibility of any any economic operator participating without any discrimination, without any question, I think that the procurement landscape would be very different and we would not have thresholds at all. Now, the other level of my criticism regarding the thresholds is that, at least as they are today, Effectively, we've got an internal market that is determined by external commitments, i.e. by the commitments that the union has accepted within the GPA. So the thresholds that we have today, that they were in the directive from 2014 and they were updated afterwards, they are the exact same thresholds that the union has accepted within the GPA. Now, the GPA, as an agreement or as um, a group of bilateral agreements, effectively implies that we are determining the size of our internal market, not by internal pressure or by internal drivers of the union, but by our ability to negotiate with our external trading partners. And that, for me, doesn't make a lot of sense. Effectively, what you're saying is that the internal market, it's not us inside the, the union that decide what is internal market. It's our ability to compromise with our trading partners that is going to determine the internal market. Again, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I think that the union should be more ambitious and should accept that lower value contracts today also are part of the internal market. And one of the reasons I think about this is if you look at our improvements in productivity have crept up over the, the last two or three decades. They have made it possible to actually economic operators in other member states to compete for more and more contracts with a lower value. And I suspect that one of the areas where it is going to be more visible quite quickly, it's going to be with contracts that have a digital nature. They are digital by default and digital only. So services, contracts that can be delivered over the internet, whatever they may be, whatever the actual object. For me, from my perspective today, they are cross-border or they are bound to generate certain cross-border interests for sure. Because the opportunity and transaction costs of actually bidding for those contracts and delivering those contracts is much lower than it was to sell physical goods 20, 30 or 40 years ago. So I think that if I could accept in the 70s that the member states would use the argument of opportunity costs or transaction costs to block the application of EU rules to traditional goods and services and and also works, Today, I think it's less uh, likely that that argument holds, but certainly it does not hold for digital contracts. Hmm. I think it's very interesting. I think in terms of the relationship between the GPA and the directives, 
And particularly here in the UK, this is something that people are starting to look at in lots of detail because of Brexit, and, and we may talk about this later. But how do you see the convergence? Because if we push EU rules to extend coverage down, mm-hmm. uh, would it be all the way down to any value? Or would we end up with a triple layer regulation where we would be the, looking at the really high value contracts we would be GPA plus full EU rules and then a sort of weaker EU regime for lower contracts and then still a small domestic threshold or how would you see the final map once this rethinking takes place? Well, as you've mentioned a few minutes ago, that already happens to a certain extent with many member states. So Portugal, Spain, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Finland, Poland, those are the ones I know. They already regulate contracts below thresholds. And there is, I suspect in most cases, a very light touch regulation for really small value contracts. And that varies from country to country. But the vast majority, let's say from 10,000 euros or 15,000 euros up to the value of the thresholds, they're subject to rules that are similar to the ones that are already contained in the directives, albeit slightly, one would hope, at least slightly lighter. So that multiple layering of regimes already exists. What this would do if we lower the thresholds for, let's say, 10% of what they are now, is that we would have a lot more harmonization of procurement rules across Europe in terms of the, the, the coverage of contracts and coverage of procurement spend that is out there. So whatever option we, we prefer, we're always going to end up with multiple layers of regulation. Hmm. So it's just a question of defining where the boundary for each one of those is going to be. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, there is also an element of interaction that probably will bring us to the next topic, but also the more aggregation of demand there is, mm-hmm. uh, and the more that use is made of framework agreements and dynamic purchasing systems, then the more spend is sort of reallocated towards larger contractual mechanisms that then would be covered by the EU rules as well. So so I think it's, it's, it's right to say, if we want to have a sort of homogeneous spread of spend covered by EU rules, we need to move the threshold lower so that those member states that are behind in adopting these frameworks and DPSs still get more spend covered by EU rules. Otherwise, funny enough, the ones that are more advanced in their procurement are the ones that are also more subjected to the EU rules than yes. the other way around. No, I think you're absolutely right. And there's another point that is interesting to mention here in terms of um, currency fluctuations and in terms of value, which is the exchange rates that then determine which are the thresholds for each member state that does not have the euro as an official currency are, is set every three years as it is for the euro-denominated currencies or the euro-denominated countries. But it doesn't take into account fluctuations during those three years. So you may have, for example, a contract which in euros was covered, <laughs> and I'm thinking about the UK, of course, a contract that two years ago would be covered both in, in the eurozone and also in the UK, that because of sharp fluctuations in the value of sterling, it should no longer be covered because it's much lower or it's much higher than it used to be. So that is another problem of using money and value as a proxy for an interest or the potential interest of a contract for an internal market. So I suspect that going forward, I think you're right that if we don't change the threshold values, we're going to end up with a system whereby you've got some contracting authorities in some member states, which would have most of their procurement expenditure covered by the directives, and most contract authorities in most member states, not. And that's what's already happening to a certain extent, because as I've said, only 17% or so of the procurement spend is actually covered by your rules. So yeah, I think you have plenty to write 
about this in the next couple of years as well. Um, I do, I do. I haven't finished it off yet. <laughs> but then at the same time, you, you're starting a project, right? Because I think you've, you're seeking funding for work on frameworks. So that's the other area of interest yeah. that you have at the moment. Yeah. So what are your thoughts about frameworks, dynamic purchasing systems and all these, these crazy things? So framework agreements, the first thing that comes to mind when I look at framework agreements is that they are a product of their time, a little bit like the thresholds. They are a product of the 90s and catalog purchasing as it was designed in the 80s and the 90s. So it's now 2017. And when we moved from a buying process that is very time consuming because you're buying each unit or each time you're launching a completely new tender to moving to an aggregate, um, a system of aggregated demand like the one for framework agreements, we're moving into effectively the paradigm of the 80s and the 90s, which is what framework agreements are, whereby you have a catalog and certain participants are selected to be part of that catalog and supply goods and services to the contracting authorities. Now, the more I look into this, the more I'm worried about the implications. So on the one hand, there's no denial that it allows for savings to be found and it allows for the reduction of the transaction costs over a certain given period of time. I agree with that. I don't have a problem with that. My questions about framework agreements is, okay, has anyone actually looked at the possibility that they foreclose the market? Because especially in those framework agreements that are mandatory for certain contracting authorities to use, then only the suppliers that actually make it in are the ones that are going to be able to supply a certain demand for any given period of time. And unfortunately, in most cases, contract authorities prefer to have long framework agreements. So has anyone looked into that? Mostly not in terms of the possibility of foreclosing the market. Then if you actually look at the way the framework agreements operate, I don't think that they actually, we can actually say that the contracts are subject to your law. We can say that the selection for the framework, yes. But from then onwards, it's pretty much anything goes. Because framework agreements tend to be a black box. No one pretty much knows what's happening inside them, how the money is being spent, how the contractors are being selected. It's just as if it's not relevant anymore. So we moved from a system where every single contract is important enough, as long as it has a certain value, is important enough to be covered by your rules and very detailed your rules, to a system that we're going to select a few participants and then the contracting authority does pretty much whatever it wants. But I, I think that the skeptics would say, well, but then once they are inside the game, mm -hmm. then the participants are going to monitor each other and the contracting authority. So provided you have some sort of private remedy that they can exercise uh, to challenge the mini competitions or the calls within the framework, then that we find. Why, why would that not be sufficient? What, what would be your, your reaction to that line of argument? My reaction would be, I think, twofold. The first one is, well, if you don't know what's happening inside, you don't know how the money is being spent. So even if you're inside the framework, if all the money is being steered towards one of your competitors for whatever reason, you don't know if that is happening. You don't know necessarily if that is happening. So there's not necessarily any accountability inside a framework agreement. So that is the first problem. Then, because effectively contracting authorities at this moment in time have free reign to design the framework agreements, how they operate on a day-to-day -day basis as they see fit, it's very hard for an economic operator that is inside to actually complain. 
And in certain jurisdictions, as we know, for example, the UK, complaints by suppliers are perceived to be a black mark against the contracting authority, and suppliers are very careful in the way that they express their complaints. So if you're already inside a framework agreement, what incentives do you actually have to blow the whistle and where would you actually blow the whistle? I mean, if you consider that framework agreements are purely private contracts or not subject to, to public procurement rules at least, it becomes very uncertain how would you go about and try to challenge any award decision because technically the period where, where the framework agreement was subject to your law or to procurement rules has already passed. And that's another thing I don't... It doesn't make very much sense to me because with the traditional procurement procedure... You look at the ones that are covered by EU rules. EU rules apply from the beginning to the end of the procedure until the contract is awarded. With framework agreements, it would seem that the application of the rules pretty much ends once the framework is established, and it's not clearly extended all the way down to the contracts being awarded. So there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of, again, uncertainty in terms of what is the legal framework that would be applicable to those contracts. Then, as you said, it is possible for the competitors that are inside the framework sometimes to know what's happening. And that leads to another problem, which is an issue of competition law, because it facilitates or it creates the condition to facilitate collusion between the participants inside a framework agreement. So at the same time, whereas I'm in favor of transparency, usually inside framework agreements, I'm very, very aware of the risks of too much information being disclosed uh, within the actual framework agreement, which would help bidders to coordinate their practices. And then, on the long run, there is something that has not been explored well in terms of framework agreements, which is they may lead to reduced supply diversity on the long run. Why do I say this? Because if only a limited number of suppliers makes it to the framework agreement, by definition, they're going to be the best ones in the sense of their financial, of their experience, their financial figure. So, turnover, the experience, all those selection requirements. And obviously, the price of not being in a framework is so high that they probably are going to try to go as low as possible, even at the dumping level, to get make sure that they get themselves into the framework agreement. So by definition, this makes the life very difficult for smaller suppliers and younger suppliers in the market to make it to the framework agreement. While it is possible to design framework agreements that are more open than this, for the most part, what the ones I've seen are very much designed to reduce competition probably too much. And that may lead, in my view, as more money gets spent through them, that may lead to reduce supply diversity on the long run. So those would be probably the biggest issues I have with framework agreements. Now, most of them actually do not apply to dynamic purchasing systems. Hmm. With a dynamic purchasing system, you can join and leave the system at any given time as a supplier. It's probably a lot more transparent because it's always open, so you always know more or less what's happening. In terms of design, it can be probably made as resource-intensive or not as a framework agreement. However, if you look at the number of framework agreements versus the number of dynamic purchasing systems, there's no doubt whatsoever that framework agreements are much more popular today than dynamic purchasing systems. But why is that? Why is the market sticking with framework agreements? Is it because they're older, they've been used more often, people are more comfortable with them in terms of contracting authorities? What advantages do they see to prefer to use framework agreements over dynamic purchasing systems? There is some movement, I think, in the UK, at least there was some movement a year ago to try to transition from the framework agreements to the dynamic purchasing systems. And it was never clear to me why dynamic purchasing systems didn't, didn't work the first time round. And 
I think the, the main argument is, oh, we had to run an open procedure, so we didn't want to do that. Whereas now that we have a negotiated procedure or restricted procedure, sorry, we can organize dynamic purchasing systems more easily. But I, I don't understand that because it's open-ended by nature. So yes. it will always be open forever. So how do you see that? Well, I... <laughs> Maybe an issue of misconception. I mean, especially here in UK, we have to understand that there's been over many years a distrust on the open procedure. And for a long time, actually, the restricted procedure was more popular than the open procedure. And the UK was the only member state where this was happening. And for me, the explanation is that the restricted procedure allows the contracting authority to reduce the number of bids that they're going to be looking at and allows it to ensure that only the best bidders actually make it to the bidding stage. So it, it gives them control, for whatever reason. I mean, in other countries that doesn't happen. But mm. here it's clearly an issue, in my view, of control, and control over the market. Now, probably people did not understand that, or did, they did understand that the framework agreement allows them to reach the same conclusion, because only a set number of participants is going to usually make it to the framework agreement. So effectively, you can use the framework agreement as you would use a restricted procedure. So it's an evolution in, in that sense of the restricted procedure. Whereas the dynamic purchasing system, because it required the open procedure, even though, even with restricted procedure, it's open, as you said, it forever, it's open-ended. So participants will have to be checked as time goes on. I suspect people just thought that, well, it means that we'll have to deal with a number of bids, a number of tenders, and we don't want that. So we want to manage our workload and we want to make sure that only the best turned up. As time goes on, I hope this changes and I hope that practitioners and public procurement officials, not only in the UK, but also elsewhere, understand that perhaps that they will be better served with something that is open-ended, like the dynamic purchasing system, instead of the more closed nature of the framework agreement. I simply don't know if there is enough take-up bearing in mind that dynamic purchasing systems is, well, 13 years old already. Mm. I don't know if there's already enough take-up to actually reach a critical mass that would uh, allow public procurement officials to feel comfortable with it and start using it more often. What's your view? I think it's an interesting point. I, I, I think that the issue will come up every time a framework expires and the contracting authority needs to decide whether to tender a new framework or, or migrate to a dynamic purchasing system. And, and I think you're right, it's a cultural issue. And, and I think that the, probably the, the policy design should be maybe nudging authorities to go for dynamic purchasing systems as a default, unless they can find some very good reason to stick to a framework agreement. And, and my personal view is that competition authorities should be doing a lot more in this area through advocacy to the public sector. So mm -hmm. not, not only in terms of cartels, which you, you have stressed very rightly, but also trying to educate the public sector in becoming more open in the way they dynamically purchase from the market. But, but I, I guess this is going to be a discussion again for a long time. But I, I think any empirical work in this area is going to be much, much deserved. So I, I hope you do move forward with some of your, of your current proposals. Well, that's certainly what I'm trying to do, trying to actually look into framework agreements and dynamic purchasing systems in multiple member states and think think about why are they not being used more, the dynamic purchasing systems on the one hand, and why do some member states actually use framework agreements so much? I mean, the UK is one, one example, Denmark is another example, and then you have other countries that don't use them almost at all. And why is that? Why is there this huge discrepancy in terms of practice? And I think that the cultural issue is going to be one that is going to be at the forefront. But also, even thinking about framework agreements, I think that it will be possible to design 
framework agreements that are less damaging to competing interests or competing principles in public procurement. So for example, if we reduce the length of the framework, if we increase the number of participants, um, those are two things that can be easily done if the contracting authority is willing to try them and they will at least minimize parts of the downsides of the framework agreements in terms of the impact that they may have on the market and especially with the SMEs. So if you know that this framework agreement will last only for one year, well, if you didn't make it, you may have an opportunity to make it in the following year. The problem with I see, as I see framework agreements here in the UK uh, nowadays, is that they tend to last for four years and the underlying contracts may last for longer. So that's another problem that we haven't discussed with framework agreements is that while the framework agreement itself may last for four years, the underlying contracts may keep on going. Yeah, that, that's the beauty of, of the lack of definition of the directive. That Correct. You can keep on creating holes everywhere. So I think there's the framework agreements and this whole area of centralization of procurement as more and more money is spent via these demand aggregation tools. I suspect that we need to pay a lot of attention to them and we need to be very much on the ball in terms of looking how they're being used in practice and what are the trade-offs because all these uh, procedures and, and, and tools imply trade-offs. And I don't think that the market and certainly the European Commission as key policy making in this, I don't think they're really aware of the trade-offs that are being implied by the, the use, for example, framework agreements over dynamic purchasing systems. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and I think you, you have plenty of work to do. But I think we, we, we have been speaking for this while about your old interests, about value of contracts and thresholds, then your new developing interests about framework agreements and processing systems. And then I guess we need to talk about things that don't necessarily are of your interest, but are on your table. Like <laughs> everybody that does procurement <laughs> in the UK, Brexit is not something we want to deal with, but hey, we have to. Yeah, we have um, to. I don't know. I mean, we, we have spoken sometimes about Brexit, but I don't think we have thought together about how things are going to change or not change or why should they change. So I'm, I'm very curious to hear about what you have to say about Brexit and procurement generally about how you think the UK is moving forward. Right. Brexit and procurement. So I think we wrote about this, what, six months ago on our blogs. Um, there's a couple of entries about this. Yeah, but it feels like hundreds of years ago. Yeah, yeah. We haven't, so we haven't revisited that recently. So Brexit and public procurement. The first point is, why should the paradigm change in terms of rules? There's so much knowledge based on the current rules. There's so many systems that have been built around the current rules. Why should we change them? That's the first question. Related with the first question is, if you look at where the government or the governments in the past could have regulated procurement, usually the governments in the UK have been very loath to actually use those powers of regulation. So for the first time uh, in 2015, we've got some regulation for contracts building thresholds, but that is very light touch. It's very detached in a sense. So if that is any indication, it would mean that the government is probably unable, in my view, to come up with a set of rules that is much better than the current ones. If you think about it, people don't know this, but we know the story or the history behind this. Many of the changes introduced in the current directive were actually pushed very hard by the British government. This may come as a surprise, but there's a lot in the directive that came first and foremost from the UK, obviously with the support from other member states, but the UK was leading the charge to introduce those changes. So it's not as if all that is on the directives and in, in, in consequence in the public contracts regulations, both the one that we commented on and, and the utilities, 
it's not as if there's much there that is purely uh, continental in a sense. It's actually, there's a lot that comes from the UK. So those are the first two questions I would ask. So why should the paradigm change when so many of the rules are actually designed or influenced by the UK? And in the areas that the government could have regulated and can regulate, it has not actually exercised that right. So those are the first two questions. So then we move on to the real complicated matters, which is whatever the government wants to do, it will depend first and foremost on what trade agreement it ends up having with the European Union. So if the trade agreement involves procurement, then I suspect there's not much scope for the rules to change because if you look at Norway and if you look at Switzerland, that is the situation with them as well. So I suspect not much will change in that in that area. What may change is, for example, and it depends where the country heads in terms of actually uh, political direction, but we may have, as we have in Scotland and Wales today, a more clear steer for or, or a Merkley here based on a certain industrial policy. We've seen that to a certain extent with the attempts of the government to force uh, procurers to buy British steel. I mean, even in the Cameron government and now with Theresa May. So we may see more of that happening, even though, and irrespectively of the agreement that the country uh, ends up having with the EU. And then finally, the final layer of uncertainty, legal uncertainty that may shape or is going to shape how procurement is regulated after departure from the Union is the GPA commitments. Is the UK part of the GPA? Will that at this moment in time it's not? Will it be able to inherit the schedules of the EU? Maybe. Will it have to, renego- to negotiate its own accession? Probably. And if it does, does it have an interest in, in actually committing to anything that is different from what it has now? even though the current system was negotiated by the EU on its behalf. So that will shape as well how the UK procurement framework is going to look in the future. I think it's interesting because there's all these different dimensions in which things may change. So the the, the industrial policy, I think, is the one that probably is going to put more pressure on the system. And then the negotiations at the GPA level. But I think that the biggest issue, and it keeps playing with my head is why should anything change really? I mean, I don't know what your view, but I think, and, and this is something we, we actually have discussed, but the transposition was so minimal that it actually lost all of the opportunities to, to reform the system yeah. just two years ago. And I am still not clear as to whether it was in anticipation of a major reform down the line or just because there are no clear ideas of what to do with the system that if you look at it, Actually, right now, it's pretty flexible. I mean, negotiation is pretty straightforward. You can introduce lots of sustainability and other requirements through your technical requirements and other things. Do you think this has been sort of everything has been held and waiting for big change to happen after Brexit? Or are we just thinking about a change that may actually not get there? I don't think the government was holding up any changes from the 2015 regulations. I mean, they they spent a lot of political capital in, in getting the directive to be what it is. So obviously, I mean, bearing in mind is as well in the way that the government sets how transposition should occur, it was always going to be a very minimal transposition, but it didn't have to be this minimal. The government opted to be very Spartan in the way that it transposed the directive into the national law. And I suspect that in addition to the stated policy, I suspect that one of the main reasons was that it was the only way they could get it out of the door before the elections in 2015. If you think about it, it is pretty much the only reason 
one can conceive for the transposition of the main directive to be rushed and to be available and made available in February 2015, whereas, for example, the utilities one came much later and the transposition had so many typos and errors that we already had amendments in 2016 to correct all those typos. So I don't think there's any actual desire to introduce a deep reform of the procurement rules. Over the years, and certainly, I mean, I've been in the UK for 10 years now um, dealing with procurement, and something that has always surprised me is when anything goes wrong with any given procurement, people blame the rules, and the people blame the rules, and in consequence, they are blaming the European Union and say, oh, no, we cannot do this because of the goddamn directives, or we have to do it this way because of the directives. And I was a lawyer, I was a practitioner. It's not that simple. There was already a lot of flexibility in Directive 2004-18, and there is certainly a lot of flexibility on this one. So if you're not exercising that flexibility, it's not because you can't, it's because you're not able to, for whatever reason. And you're right when you say that, for example, it's so much easier today to use negotiated forms of procedures uh, than it was just two years ago. So... What else do you want to do? I mean, the only thing that I can come up with is not that we set in contracts at all. That will be probably the preferred option of... Um, yeah, but of, that's not uh, only in the UK. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know, I know. But that's why we have got the rules, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's to avoid that. But I suspect that would be the, the preferred option for public procurement officials, which is I want to hire who I want to hire, whatever the way I want to hire. On that note, <laughs> um, <laughs> how do you think it's going to unfold now with these... Brexit commitment requirements that we discussed in our blogs yesterday or two days ago. Do you think that in, in this time in between now and Brexit, they will keep on testing the waters to see what they can do? Or do you think that some point things need to stabilize? Or For future reference, I mean, these are two blog posts that we've written about a cultural fit clause in a contract to be tendered by the Department for International Trade, which read something along the lines that we will want the, the contractor to choose to be committed to make a success out of Brexit. Now, there's two levels of that discussion, Albert. I think the first level is in terms of the actual application of the existing rules in a day-to-day basis. On the one hand, I hope it doesn't change much, because if it changes, it means that people are being very strategic in the way they approach procurement. That is effectively a possibility. That may happen. And the more strategic people are, the more likely it is that they will just ignore the, the rules, or at least the bits that clearly come from EU law. And the reason I say this is because over the last few months, I've become more and more convinced that as the UK walks towards Brexit, the deterrent effect of the Court of Justice, of any action before the Court of Justice, or most remedies available, it's going to become lower and lower. So it's going to become weaker and weaker, and people are are going to start to become more emboldened in the terms of, okay, if my colleagues over there have been able to tender this contract with this kind of clauses, which are, for whatever whatever reason, they're illegal, why can't I do the same? Why can't I push the boundary a little bit further? So I suspect that we're going to see that happening, unfortunately, going forward. And to a certain extent, if you think about before the transposition of Directive 2014-24, how Scotland and Wales were looking at community benefits, I would argue that many of those ideas would not fit within the rules as they were conceived in the 2004 Directive. Do they fit today in the 2014 one? Maybe. I mean, we can discuss those. But I suspect that the most entrepreneurial minds, in a sense, will continue to push the boundaries and try to to see what they can get away with. Because 
the risk of being caught is getting lower by the day. And even if they're caught, they can always play for time and say, okay, so if you want to challenge this decision for being illegal, go for it and, and take it all the way to the Court of Justice. And by the time it reaches the, the Court of Justice, we're going to be out of the EU. So it's not going to have a jurisdiction over the topic. There's definitely that risk. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm, I think we're going to see that more and more happening, not only in procurement, unfortunately, but also in other areas as well. And as someone that is benefiting from free movement uh, of people at this moment in time, that makes me a little bit uneasy. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I completely share your uneasiness to keep your podcast up for all publics. I think that the last issue that maybe is interesting picking your brains on before we, we conclude is you have been interviewing loads of early career researchers, people doing interesting research in this area for the last couple of years. And one thing you keep moaning about is methodology and how <laughs> legal methods are not as straight as they could be. And yeah. what do you want to say about this? Get, get it off your chest. Yeah, okay. So I, I'm going to make two comments on that. So the first one is, it was great that I was able to interview so many people with from so many different walks of life that are super smart and are doing amazing research related with procurement. I mean, when I started this, I could not anticipate the, the breadth of research that was being done by early career researchers on procurement. So it was great to see all that being done. So I'm I'm incredibly grateful to the British Academy for actually giving me that opportunity and obviously creating the obligation of me on, <laughs> on delivering on, on that commitment. And the consequence of talking with so many people that are doing interesting stuff in procurement from different sciences, different areas, different uh, backgrounds is... I came to the conclusion of something that has I've been on the back of my mind for a long time, which is, for the most part in law, in terms of research methods, we're stuck in the dark ages. My wife, she is she's a social scientist and she works in a medical school, so she deals a lot with um, quantitative research methods. And we have intense arguments and discussions about, <laughs> about research and research methods. And I'm always in the losing side of it. I mean, because I, I, I can't really defend what effectively, in a sense, in law are essentially logical deductions to a certain extent, but a lot of inferred opinions and legal opinions from people that are looking at the law and giving their opinion. And when I look at argumentation in law, we usually evaluate it for being right or wrong, depending on how the courts end up applying it, which means that as if you're more persuasive than, than your opponent and people with a different view, you are more likely to actually be right. But that doesn't mean that we're actually correct. And there's a, an absurd, I would say, lack of good empirical, good quality empirical research in law. Now, over the years, there's been a, an increase, and it's important to mention that, an increase in the use of social sciences research methods to uh, look into local legal questions. And I used those, for example, in my PhD. So I, I was looking at the law in action, how it was being actually applied in real life and what were the problems that people were having in, the, in real life. So it was a, a step forward in comparison with just, you know, traditional argumentation or traditional black letter analysis. But what I think is missing in law, and certainly in Europe, it's happening a little bit in the US, but certainly in Europe, is an ability and interest and a commitment to do quantitative research studies in law. This is different from, let's say, law and economics, because Mixing law and economics means that you're missing both research methods and also research questions. So you're looking at the research question, trying to see it, yes, with the quantitative research method, but trying to see it, the legal implications and the economic implications. If you look at economics, they've made that jump maybe 50 years ago. 
If you look at political science, they made that jump to quantitative research methods, what, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? A long time ago. If you look at law, we're still in the bloodletting <laughs> area or type of research saying, oh, we're going we're gonna to bleed a little bit and you'll see that my research is right. Um, whereas we certainly lack the ability to, most of us, to do consistent, high-quality, quantitative research uh, using good empirical research methods. I suspect that the reason for this and the real explanation for this is most of us, me included, do not have a quantitative background, i.e. we dropped maths in high school when we were 15 or 16. And that effectively makes us blind to that whole area of research and to those all those methods that could help us actually look into legal questions from a legal perspective, not a legal economics perspective, but even from a legal perspective, and reach conclusions using those methods. So I think I'll finally have to take the plunge on that one. And instead of just whining and, and complaining and moaning about it, actually try to do something about it. So that is certainly something that I will be jumping off a cliff pretty soon, I, saw, I, I hope and suspect. What's your view? I think you're right. And I think particularly in the way things are going with more interdisciplinary research and, and funding, really nudging people to try to go beyond their own discipline, we, we need to start doing more quantitative analysis. And it's going to be challenging to determine what can be done, what cannot be done. Uh, there's also going to be lots of issues now around sort of automatization or artificial intelligence and how that can be applied to law. But but I think that's another area where definitely that there's lots of stuff to do in, in the future. And, you know, as you say, we need to just get out of the comfort zone and go back to high school if it's about math or, or, or start getting trained on coding, which are very different challenges and and skills we need to develop. But that's that's the future. But, I mean, those problems were already faced by the other disciplines. I mean, they've gone through that. They've gone through their, their walk in the desert to try to figure out and get out of the dark ages of research methods. So they've done that. So we can do that in law as well. Now, there is one thing I'd like to comment about you. You write about the increasing pressure for interdisciplinary research, and that is important because it gives us and everyone else a different perspective and a different viewfinder and frame set to interpret questions. But I still think and will argue that there is space, as there is in economics and political science, to use research methods from those sciences or imported from those sciences to answer legal questions which is slightly different from interdisciplinary research. And with this, I don't want to minimize the importance of interdisciplinary research. And I think it's very important and it's key that um, more and more people are willing to work at the boundaries of their own disciplines. But for what concerns law, I think there's space as well for legal research to be done by quantitative and empirical research methods. You might be right. Yes. But again, another thing that is going to keep you busy for the future. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So is the life of an academic. <laughs> so it is. I mean, you, you promise your audience a longer than regular podcast. I think they are now on the two and a half helpings of it. Uh, <laughs> is there something else you would like to discuss or would you just want to draw this to a close? I think we can draw this to a close. I just want to, to thank some people before we, we finish. So first of all, I would like to thank you for being the first guest of the podcast and the last host of the current series. I don't know if there's going to be a third series or not. Uh, if there is going to be a third series, it's going to be probably a different format in terms of interviewing people from other areas and not just early career researchers. 
But at this moment in time, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. It may happen maybe next year. So big thank you for you, Albert, for uh, being up for both challenges at the beginning and at the end. Then a big thank you to all my other guests in the interviewees that gave their time, uh, gave their uh, knowledge as well, and were uh, willing to be be part of this this project. And finally, a big heartfelt thank you to the British Academy, which has been absolutely incredible in the level of support that they've given me over the last two years. They've been um, very good in terms of the financial support, but also the ability to uh, understand certain changes in circumstances as <laughs> as life sometimes changes. Uh, and that's, boy, that has happened to me in the last year or so. So I'm very grateful for them, for the support, all the support that I've been given from the British Academy and uh, the British Academy research offices that have been involved with uh, Bar C and particularly with the podcast. So that's pretty much it. It's just a big heartfelt thank you. And the same goes to you. And I, I think that all of the public procurement nerd community <laughs> really appreciates the fantastic content that you have created over these two years. I think I speak with them just to encourage you to find a way of doing a third series sometime about something similar, because this has been great fun and, and very enlightening to to hear and, and, and to read. And, and I think that there's a lot of exchange of ideas and, and new networks coming up after this. So that's very good work. That's very true. Thank you very much. And just one final note to cap it up. I was incredibly surprised by the take-up of the podcast. Uh, there was a lot more people interested on these topics than I anticipated at the beginning. A lot more. So thank you for the audience. Thank you to the audience as well for turning up every month or so to, to listen to the podcast. So that was the last Polyprocurement podcast uh, episode for season two. You can find me at my blog, tellers.eu, or on Twitter, where I use two handles, at Tetic for general discussion and at Polyprocure for polyprocurement-related topics. As ever, I'm incredibly grateful for the support of the British Academy Rising Star Engagement Award, which made possible this project. If you like the show, it will be really helpful if you could rate it on iTunes, helping others finding it, where it's going to be staying for the foreseeable future. Until next time, maybe next year.